9, beginning in verse 1. A maskil of Ethan the Ezraite. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him? O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord? with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab, read there Egypt, like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously proclaim your name. You have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, high your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted, for our shield belongs to the Lord, our King to the Holy One of Israel. Of old, you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him, him. the wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness. I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. But now you have cast off and rejected You are full of wrath against your anointed. 
You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword, and you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. How long, O Lord? Will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked. And how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you now for these few moments. Lord, we're going to try to make sense of uh, this wonderful and glorious covenant that you made with David. And we're going to try to do it in a way that exalts you and helps us understand more fully uh, what it is that you have done for us through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, for as Jesus reminded us, apart from him, we can do nothing. We pray all this now in his name. Amen. The people of God have always viewed the world around us somewhat differently than our pagan or secularist neighbors. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that we don't think that the sky is blue or that grass is green or that water is wet. So let me just tell you right now, I'm going to spend more than a few moments this week trying to convince my young nephews that the water's not quite as wet this year at the lake, is it? Does the water feel a little dry to you guys? And they're going to look at me like I'm just completely stupid. And it's a game that we play, and I love it, even if they hate it. What I do mean, though, is that the people of God possess the ability to look through their circumstances, understanding that the God of the Bible is at work, oftentimes in ways that we cannot discern or understand. Now, it's important when I say that we're going to look through our circumstances. We're not looking around them. We're not looking over them. But rather, we're trying to, in the circumstances in which we find ourselves as God's people, we're trying to look through them and by faith figure out, or at least try to get some sort of grasp as to what it is that the Lord is doing. In short, the people of God view life through eyes of faith. This is nowhere more true than when our circumstances are throwing hands at us. When our circumstances are buffeting us and uh, making us uh, question and wonder, is God there? 
And if he is, is he really sure about what it is that he's doing? Now, we need something a bit more concrete than simply to say the church views their circumstances through eyes of faith. That can be pretty vague and kind of pious and can mean just about anything you want it to. Thankfully, then, our text for this morning gives us both clarity and content to what it means for the people of God to view their circumstances through eyes of faith. And it's our big idea for this morning. So here it is. The people of God must interpret their circumstances through the covenant faithfulness of God's forever king. Now, as we get into this psalm, there are a couple things contextually that we need to uh, grasp kind of what's going on. Uh, Last week, when we looked at Psalm 88, we saw that it was a psalm of individual lament. The psalmist is saying, God, what, what are you doing to me? What's going on with me? I'm trying to make sense of my life. Psalm 89 is also a lament, but it's not an individual lament. It's a corporate lament. It's God's people crying out things like, How long, O Lord? It's God's people who are trying to make sense of why it is that if God made an eternal covenant with David and God always keeps his word, why are they now living in exile in Babylon? We also need to understand in terms of the context that Psalm 89 is the last psalm in what we call book three of the psalm. So uh, take your Bible, if you would, and turn to the end of Psalm 89. And look at the very next psalm, because in the ESV, and by the way, that can be found on page 596 of your pew Bible. The very next psalm, uh, and this is a superscription, but what does it say in your Bible? Book four. So we're at the end of book three. We're going to start again in book four. And these are not just random headings, but rather there is a movement to the psalms. Now, what we've seen in Psalm Uh, In in the third book of the Psalms, we've seen that God made these wonderful promises to David. That's book one. Book two, we see the majesty of the Davidic king. But in book three, we've seen desolation and destruction. It seems like all of those wonderful covenant promises that God made are going to be thwarted. They're not going to come to pass because of the faithlessness of his people, and particularly the faithlessness of David's descendants. Book four, then, as we're going to see next week, is going to ground the hope of God's people in something other than David's descendants. It's going to ground it in the very nature of God himself. But as we think about the end of book three, we need to understand that the psalmist is not suggesting that God's covenant has failed or that God's plan has been thwarted. He's simply wrestling with the fact of God, I, I, I know you that you're faithful. I know you've said you're going to do this. But for the life of me right now, I can't see how that's going to work. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been there. I've stepped back and look at my life and God, okay, God, there are these wonderful promises that you've made. Um, and, and there are these, these great promises in Scripture that we, we love to, uh, that we love to lay hold of. And I'm just not seeing it. 
Now, God, I, I, I know you're faithful. I know you're there. I know all the things that the psalmist is going to tell us in verses 5 to 18. I know all those things are true. But man, I just don't see it right now. And so our prayer becomes like the prayer of the boy's father who has the seizures and throws him in the fire. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Five points that we want to make this morning, uh, not because five is some sort of magic number, but because that's the number of movements that we see in this particular text. And the first one is God's forever king or God's forever king. I don't know if you noticed this, but as we were reading uh, through Psalm 89, there are a number of words that show up quite a bit. Forever and eternal would be one of them. David and covenant are two more that show up a lot. The phrase steadfast love, which we've understood in the past to be the Hebrew word hesed, that word shows up quite a bit. And so we know that in the Bible, because the writer cannot underline things and can't use different fonts or can't make it bold, that the author uses repetition to remind us of the things that are significant and the things that are important. In verses 1 to 4, the word for or the phrase forever shows up three different times. The psalmist is celebrating the fact that God said to David, I'm making an eternal covenant with you. One of your descendants is going to sit on the throne forever. The psalmist then in verses 1 to 4 is reflecting on that great promise. Not because it's a promise to which he's going to anchor his life, but because that anchor feels more like it's weighing him down than keeping him fast and firm. The promise feels like a millstone. God, you've made this covenant. It's an eternal covenant. We know that you are faithful, God. We know that you do not lie. And yet our circumstances are such that we can't quite figure out what's going on. Now, when that happens, and it does happen, we need to remember this a wonderful truth. It's not just uh, true in this particular text, but it's true throughout the Bible. We need to learn as God's people to hold the tension between uh, what the text calls the now and the not yet. God has made a number of wonderful promises to his people. But friends, that does not mean that we are going to receive all of those wonderful promises right here and right now. In fact, we understand that some of the things that God has promised to his people are so grand and so wonderful and so awe-inspiring that this particular life in a fallen world could not hold them. So we're waiting for something that is yet to come. Now the author of the book of Hebrews wants to make sure that we understand that that's been true of God's people all along. And that's in actuality, that's the essence of faith. The essence of faith is understanding that, hey, God's been faithful to me now. He's going to be faithful to me in the not yet. So what I'm looking for is not my best life now. But what I'm looking for 
is how and in what wonderful way the Lord is going to fulfill all of his promises in that which is yet to come. I think, though, that we probably need to do a little better job of reminding ourselves that our current life is an exercise of living intention. I'm not sure that the contemporary American church feels a whole lot of tension unless we're talking about politics. Now, we do a pretty good job of understanding that some of the utopian visions that people want to peddle are really never going to come true. We figured that out. I've shared this before, but uh, our family, we support a, a ministry called International Justice Mission. Love the work that they do. It's really crucial work, uh, particularly um, the work that they do in terms of human trafficking. Is, is It's phenomenal, and I would commend them uh, to you. But IJM, every once in a while, they'll send out these mailers. And it just it makes me think, okay, for a group that's doing such good work, uh, your, your theology is just a little off. Because they'll say things like, with your support and your donations, we can end slavery now. Yeah, we can. Not going to happen. Now, I don't say that like, well, it's not going to happen, so we shouldn't do anything about it. But friends, those things are going to end when Christ returns, not until then. So please don't hear me saying, because certain things are not going to come true until Jesus returns, it doesn't mean that we should do nothing. No, the Bible is pretty clear about that. We're to do justly and love mercy and walk humbly with our God. But this idea, this over-realized expectation of what's going to happen in this life, which is articulated in things like, we can end slavery now, or you can have your best life now. We are suckers for that. And we shouldn't be. We shouldn't be. We can and ought to do better at living within the tension of the now and the not yet. Secondly, we're told of the one true God. We're told of the one true God. I love the poetry in verses 5 to 18. I love the way that the psalmist describes our God. Did you notice how beautiful it is? Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of all the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the counsel of all the holy ones and awesome above all who are above him, around him. The psalmist is reminding the people of God of what we know about him. And that's important for us to sort of put a pin in that particular thought. See, when our circumstances are like the circumstances of the psalmist, at that point we tend to back up a little bit and we go, well, okay, there's what I know about God, but there's what I'm feeling at this particular time. And if we're not careful, 
what we know, how it is that God has revealed himself in his word, can take a back seat to our feelings. Our circumstances become so overwhelming and, and we're feeling uh, so just knocked about that at the moment we feel like, well, I just, I, just, I just need to articulate my feelings and then everything will be okay. But the psalmist here is reminding us that no, when our circumstances are not what we would like, the first thing we need to do is back up and say, what do I know about God? Not what do I feel, not what do I think I know, or not even what I have experienced. But no, we need to back up and go, okay, what does this book say? How do, how do we know about God? Well, primarily, fundamentally, we know about him in this book. And so the psalmist is reminding God's people of what they know about God. Some time ago, I was sitting down with a, a couple. Uh, they were having some extended family issues, and we were talking, and um, but they're not from here, so don't don't look around and be like, whose kids are acting like idiots? All of your kids are acting like idiots, yes. Uh, but we were sitting there, and, and the wife, rather tearfully, uh, was was sharing with me this, this wonderful text that she was certain that the Lord had given to her. And then she was telling me all the ways in which she was trying to live this out in, in the midst of these really trying circumstances. And, and she, at one point, and please, when we're talking about things, please don't do this to me because um, I'm going to tell you what I think. And it'll probably hurt your feelings. And I'm, I'm not trying to, I promise, right? But she looked at me and she told me, oh, the Lord gave me this wonderful text and I'm not supposed to do anything. I'm just supposed to, to blah, blah, blah. Uh, pastor isn't that great. Isn't it great that the Lord gave me that? So I stopped and said, well, maybe. She's like, well, what do you mean? I'm not sure that the Lord gave you that text. Pastor, what? what uh, but No, no I, I felt that I experienced it. Okay, let's go back to the Bible. When Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, what tool did the enemy use? The Bible. So if you're going to sit here and go, oh, pastor, isn't it great? The Lord gave me this text. Friend, please understand Satan knows way more Bible than you will ever know. And he's really good at using it in these twisted and particular ways. So when we're battered about by our circumstances, don't sit here and go, well, this is what I feel, or this is what I think, or I, 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 I've experienced, the Lord has given me this. No, go back to the Word. What's the Word tell us? The Word tells us in verses 5 to 8 that there's nobody like our God. He possesses a majesty that is unrivaled. And not only is there no one like our God, but our God commands and controls all that he has created. He is the absolute master of everything that he has made. 
Now, when you put those two things together, that there's no one like him, and God absolutely controls all things, we tend to look at that and go, well, God could be then some sort of cosmic dictator. But in verses 14 to 18, the psalmist says, no, God possesses a kind of moral grandeur that we can only marvel at. God is not unfair. He's not unjust. The power has not gone to his head. God is not crooked. God is not out to get you. No. There's one true God. And he has no rivals. There is no one like him. And he is the very definition of the kind of moral grandeur that the psalmist is going to put forward. Now, one of the things whenever we come to a particular text, one of the questions that we want to be asking is, uh, why does the author put this here? You have to wonder, don't you, why, after verses 1 to 4, why would the psalmist then immediately in turn in verse 5 uh, turn to this section in which uh, the, the unrivaled majesty, mastery, and moral grandeur of God is being presented? Well, there's a couple of reasons, I think. First are the circumstances in which they find themselves. See, when we're wrestling through trying to figure out what it is that God is up to, there's always the temptation that we're going to fall prey to a couple things. One is... We're going to think, well, God might not know what he's doing. Now, I know we're going to sit there and go, no, no, pastor, we're, we're far too spiritually mature to think things like that. Well, let me just tell you, uh, I, I wondered about it this week. God, do you really know what you're doing? I mean, I know you do, but really, do you? We would also be tempted to wonder, and this has been presented in several different ways throughout church history. But we'd also be tempted to wonder, well, uh, God wants certain things to be true, but God doesn't always have the juice to bring that about. And that's where the psalmist says, no, you don't understand. God has absolute mastery of all that's going on. Perhaps we wonder if God is a bit like the Norse god of mischief, Loki. God's up to some stuff just for grins and giggles because he's a little bored. When you know everything that's going to happen, you want to throw in a little chaos just for some fun, right? And the psalmist reminds us, no, our God is a God of moral grandeur. But I think the psalmist is also doing this because we need to remember that God's people are now living in exile. And God's people are being told all kinds of ridiculous things. They're being told things that violate every truth the Bible tells us, like God created the heavens and the earth, and he did so intentionally. That there's only one true God. And if you read through the book of Daniel, you'll see just some of the nonsense that God's people are having to put up with and having to confront. And so it's good for us in the midst of trying circumstances. It's good for us in the midst of a culture that knows nothing really of the nature of the one true God. It's good for us to be reminded from time to time about who our God is and how our God operates. What is his nature? What is his character? Thirdly, we learn that our God is a God of covenant faithfulness. We're going to go quicker from this point. So hang on. 
In verses 19 to 37, the psalmist again reminds Israel of their history. It's gone from speaking about the nature and character of the one true God to the nature and character of God's relationship with David. And we see beginning in verse 19 that the vision he spoke to his godly one. So here we should understand he's talking about Samuel. And Samuel has a vision that David is going to be God's new king. And so in verse 20, I have found David my servant with my holy oil. I have anointed him. So it's, it's, he's recounting for them the biography of David, the greatest king of Israel. And he's uh, letting them know that David's story then should strengthen and encourage God's people. God was faithful to David all of David's life. So if God is faithful to David through all of his life, we ought not think, we ought not question, we ought not wonder if God is going to be faithful to the covenant promises he made with David now that David has been long dead and in the grave. That's why Matthew chapter 1 is such an important thing for us to read and understand. In Matthew chapter 1, do you note how Matthew divided up that genealogy? From Abraham to David, from David to the exile, from the exile to Jesus. So here are God's people in exile, trying to understand their circumstances through the covenant faithfulness of God's forever king. And Matthew says, hey, let me help you out. You want to know how it is that God was faithful to the covenant promise he made to his servant David? The answer, like all things in church, is Jesus. This is how he did it. This is how he brought it about. The Lord Jesus Christ is God's forever king. God was faithful to the covenant promises that he made to David in his life, and he's also faithful to the covenant promises that he made to him in his death. And we know that because of the person and work of the Lord Jesus. Here's where the wrestling comes in then. Verse 38. And again, uh, just pay attention to the text. It tells you all you need to know. But now. God, it's great. You're awesome. You are majestic. You are the master. You possess this wonderful moral grandeur. You are faithful to the promises you made to your servant David. But now, we are living in a flaming hot mess. This is a complete dumpster fire. You have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. Maybe. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruin. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword and not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. 
You've cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. And friends, here is probably the most important question in Psalm 89. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? See, here's what the psalmist is beginning to realize and beginning to understand. And in essence, we get to listen in to this internal conversation that the psalmist is having. The psalmist understands that the desolation and the destruction and the exile that has come about is also an indicator of God's covenant faithfulness. Friends, God's covenant faithfulness doesn't mean that you win all the time. God's covenant faithfulness means that God is always going to act consistently within the boundaries of the covenant. And one of the things that the Bible makes clear from beginning to end is that God is really good at being faithful. In fact, it's his thing. Conversely, the Bible makes it very clear that you and I are really good at being unfaithful. In fact, that's our thing. So when God says, I'm going to be faithful to the covenant that I make with you, and by the way, in this covenant there are blessings and there are curses, and you're really good at unfaithfulness, guess what's going to happen? Desolation, destruction, exile. That's what's going to happen. So now the psalmist is asking the inevitable question, and by the way, it's been the question of the church ever since. How long, O oh Lord? Friends, part of uh, looking through our circumstances uh, to God's covenant faithfulness and his forever king is that that becomes our question as well. That question, how long, O oh Lord, ought to characterize the church. You see, while I can't agree with IJM's statement, we can end slavery, I can nonetheless think about what's going on in terms of human trafficking in the world, and I can very much cry out to the Lord and ask, How long, O Lord? I can look at my marriage and think about the ways in which I'm a complete idiot in the marriage, or because she's not here, the ways in which Amy is a complete idiot in our marriage, and I can go, how long, oh Lord? Don't, Dan. Do you remember how the Bible ends? In Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, John says this, Amen, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's the New Testament version of how long, O Lord. See, friends, when we're confronted with what the hymn writer called a frowning providence, and that's what the psalmist is wrestling with. 
there is a particular cry of faith that is always appropriate. It's not appropriate to just sit there and go, well, I guess God doesn't care. Or, well, he might not be up there. But this cry of, how long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Understand, that's not doubt. That's an appropriate expression of one's faith. In fact, that's the cry of faith. Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Fifthly and finally, we get the doxology. I, I love this. I love through all, all, right, all the wrestling that's going on. And man, we think you've forgotten about stuff. And God, what's happening? What's going on? Verse 52. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. We could take a note from that, couldn't we? In fact, I, 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 as I was preparing for this this week, I thought, you know what, Kyle, you should probably try to do this as well. When your circumstances are just beating the fool out of you, and you're trying to make sense of all this, and you're trying to go, okay, uh, Lord, what, what are you doing? I mean, I know you're trying to teach me something, and I know I never learned enough until I had to, so... Uh, what What's going on here? A good way to start and a good thing to remind ourselves of as we move through is blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Let's just start there. And then from there, in essence, we can kind of work backwards, can't we? Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. How long? And how is it as I think through this that I see your covenant faithfulness at work through your forever king, namely your son, Jesus? One of the things I love about the Lord's table is that it takes the suffering of our lives and it situates it. It places it. I don't have to wonder if the suffering in my own life is just some kind of random element in this galaxy that just sort of happened. I'm not stepping back and trying to reflect upon uh, some kind of karmic thing that's going on or maybe my, maybe my chi is off or whatever it is. No, the table places our suffering. It places it in the context of the one true God and the covenant that God has made, not just with those who call themselves Christians, but the covenant that God has made because He is the Creator with all of His creation. And when we come to the table, we learn that suffering is not somehow outside of God's plan. It's not an anomaly to God's plan. It's not some sort of mistake that God's sitting there scratching His head going, ah, yeah, that whole suffering thing. I, I, I just missed that, I guess. No, we learn from the table that God's redemptive plan includes suffering. In fact, the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ is the primary way in which God shows and demonstrates his redemptive plan. And so as we come to the table this morning, 
and as we think about interpreting our own circumstances. Friends, I want to suggest to us this morning that we, after we start with a doxology and after we think about that crowning providence, we need to look to the table. We need to look to Jesus. And we need to marvel at the fact that through our suffering, God can use it redemptively. In fact, he does use the suffering of his people redemptively. It's not random. It's not a mistake. It's not outside of his control. But it is blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Uh, forgive us for the ways in which we unsuccessfully try to interpret what's going on in our lives and forgive us in the ways in which we come to really, really bad conclusions. That you can't do anything or you're not there or that uh, this is somehow beyond your control and it's caught you by surprise as well. Father, rather give us eyes of faith. Help us to view the circumstances in our lives uh, through your covenant faithfulness as made manifest in your forever King, the Lord Jesus Christ. For we pray these things now in his name. Amen. Amen.